people struggle with CSS because they don't understand why Very true. things are getting applied styles. Which is why you get tricks and hacks because it's like, what is working? How did it work? Why is it there? Why is it moved? Right? And Firefox is this way and Chrome is that way. You know, why, why, why essentially? You know what I want? <laughs> yeah. I want someone listening to build a VS Code plugin that will give me on hover the specificity calculation of a selector. Can someone build that? That's a good idea. Yeah, that needs to be a thing. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at O'Reilly. Many of you know O'Reilly for their animal tech books and their conferences, but you may not know they have an online learning platform as well. The platform has all their books, all their videos, and all their conference talks. Plus, you can learn by doing with live online training courses and virtual conferences, certification practice exams, and interactive sandboxes and scenarios to practice coding alongside what you're learning. They cover a ton of technology topics, machine learning, AI, programming languages, DevOps, data science, cloud, containers, security, and even soft skills like business management and presentation skills. You name it, it is all in there. If you need to keep your team or yourself up to speed on their tech skills, then check out O'Reilly's online learning platform. Learn more and keep your team skills sharp at O'Reilly.com slash changelog. Again, O'Reilly.com slash changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We have some awesome episodes coming down the pipeline. We are talking rendering patterns with Brian LaRue, Spider Monkey with Yulia Startsev, and we're even working on a show with StackBlitz on how they brought Node natively to the browser. Fight your FOMO by subscribing right now at jsparty.fm or in your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's party time, y'all. What's up, party people? We have an exciting episode today. We are talking about everyone's favorite programming language, which is CSS. And I'm very excited because we are joined by one of my favorite, well, like Twitter acquaintances, but also we worked at the same place at the same time without ever having spoken. But that is Una Kravitz. Hello. It's so funny that you say that because I just recorded a podcast yesterday where I interviewed someone who worked at IBM at the same time that I did, but it was just such a big company that we never got mm-hmm. to see each other. But hi, everyone. My name is Yuna. I'm a developer advocate at Chrome, focusing on CSS and dev tools, basically just trying to make the web platform a little bit better and more stylable for all the people that are trying to build on it today. <laughs> yeah, we're so excited. And Yuna and Adam Argyle have your own CSS podcast. So I'm thrilled that you were able to join us and share some knowledge. Yes, I have two podcasts, actually. I have the CSS podcast, which is focused on CSS. And then I also host a podcast called Tools Day with my colleague, Chris Donaraj, who also worked Ah, at IBM. Yes, yes, yes. I knew Donaraj. Yeah. So we've been doing that podcast for like five and a half years now. It's kind of crazy. Wow. Congrats. I know. I feel old. (laughs) It's not like a congrats thing. It's like, oh, wow, we've been doing this for so long. But it's fun to kind of record that podcast, too, because... 
Unlike the CSS podcast, which is mostly information that doesn't change, is about the spec, this podcast is about tech tools. So things are changing all the time. And the tools that we used five years ago are just completely different than the tools that we're using today. So it's fun to see how that's evolved. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to chat a little bit more about some difficult CSS concepts, but we're also joined by Adam Stachowiak, who is a big time player in JS Party, but you don't often join us, do you, Adam? Almost never, except for <laughs> when it makes sense, which is almost never. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're excited that you're here. I say we kick things off by just having a really quick discussion around why CSS has such a polarizing reputation. I've noticed this in the tech sphere on Twitter. I personally love CSS. I think it's invaluable and has a lot of strengths. And it's a lot more robust of a language than we give it credit for. But a lot of people either say one of two things. They either say it's too easy to be like on the same level as JavaScript or Java or another language, or it's too difficult to learn properly and they just don't understand specificity and all of those things. What do y'all think about this polarizing issue? I think that a lot of it stems from this division that we used to have very clearly in design versus engineering. And I do think that some developers kind of equate CSS with design and don't really think of it as engineering, which I think is very inaccurate. CSS is one of those languages that is very easy to pick up quickly and learn things like how to change a text color, but it is very tricky to master. And that's where we see a lot of the frustration now, because I think what's happening is when you look at job listings, you will see like requires five years of React experience in JavaScript. You're not going to see as often, you know, requires semantic HTML and CSS styling experience. So boot camps aren't teaching proper CSS and HTML semantics. They're just kind of focusing on what the resumes need to say to get a job. And yeah. so now we have all of these senior developers who have been working in the industry for years who don't have a strong baseline for how to style things on the web. And it's because it's not as valued in resumes. And then, you know, you, you find these companies like kind of struggling with accessibility and with just getting things to have decent user experiences. And I feel like the web is worse off for it. Right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think there are is severe implications to not understanding CSS. So one example I always love to give is this example from a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it says, imagine you're flying from LA to New York. And if the pilot leaves from Los Angeles airport and adjusts the heading of the airplane just by 3.5 degrees south, you're going to land in Washington, D.C., instead of New York. And for those non-United States of America listeners, those states are not close. My point with this is that we get high fidelity designs from our designers. And if we are not careful with implementing those designs as they're meant to be in terms of respecting padding, margin, color properties, typography, our product is going to look vastly different, even though there are minor changes in your eyes. Yeah. And it's not even just about like typography and color, it's also just, it's about layout. It's about user experience. It's about overall the ability to implement components that are useful and that work effectively. And this is core to building web apps and websites. But I think that when we equate JavaScript to logic and action and then CSS to just a, a layer of design, that's where I think that there is a little bit of a disrespect for the craft of a website. I mean, it's very clear that user experience is the number one 
driver of users back to your product and differentiator of your product. So I think that it's a little bit telling now as we've kind of fallen into this trap of, oh, we have all these developers who don't know styling anymore, that how important this has become to kind of re-educate people and bring back to the forefront of web development. It's also an accessibility issue too, because so one common issue I see, and actually this is a common interview question as well for front end development roles is how would you visually hide something in the DOM, but still make it available to screen readers? And a lot of people don't know this and putting a display none on an element uh, seems like a quick fix, but in reality, that's going to make it inaccessible to people relying on uh, these tools. So it has implications above and beyond, you know, just this, you know, quote unquote, superficial yeah. reasons. And mm-hmm. there's so much you can do with CSS to simplify your life. Like I've seen just so many JavaScript solutions that hack around basic things that you can do with CSS. If you just knew like a line of code or two. And yeah, to your point, Emma, there is this idea of certain properties affect the DOM and the accessibility tree and other things in very specific ways. And if you kind of skim over that or gloss over that, you might mistakenly make something completely inaccessible. There's also things like content that are visible to some screen readers. There's a lot of nuance in CSS. And I think this is where that whole idea of very easy to pick up and make some things like get a background and a certain text color. Yes, but then with mastery of it, with the layout, with all of the nuances for accessibility and semantics, that's where things get pretty interesting. And that is where I think like the community uh, has a lot of room to grow. Absolutely. I would love to talk about a couple areas of CSS that we found particularly challenging when we were learning, because I remember sitting in my little office in IBM in Austin, Texas. First of all, I studied Java in school. It was a computer science major, and so I never fully learned web development. Ironically, I took one web dev class, and they spent one day on HTML and CSS, and then the rest of the time on like Bootstrap and PHP. So I never learned CSS, and I remember struggling immensely with position, position fix, position absolute. I did not understand the difference between those for like a year at least. Yeah, it's funny that you actually mentioned like what you learned in school because I also studied computer science and we did Python and Java. And then I never really got a chance to learn like web technology. My web development class was Cold Fusion. And I never touched that now, <laughs> even just like MySQL. But I do think that that is funny. I feel like in schools, when you learn computer science, you don't learn web development. You usually don't learn JavaScript. You don't learn HTML and CSS. I got to learn that stuff in a design class, kind of, but a lot of it is kind of like explore on your own. But yeah, I think the positioning thing is interesting. With CSS, there are a few concepts, right? So there's like the box model concept, there's the cascade concept, there's encapsulation, there's compositing, composite layers. And all of these things are various concepts that help you to understand why the language is the way it is. So with positioning, I think that's one example of like where you're creating like essentially a layer of information where like an absolute position would position something to its immediate parent that has relative positioning in the document. And so as that relative parent or absolute parent, whatever the topmost layer for the positioning is, as that scrolls down the page, that absolutely positioned element will move with it. So as you move around, like a tooltip might be absolutely positioned to its uh, sibling and then you know, as you scroll, that will move with it. But then something that is fixed 
goes to the topmost layer of the root and it stays on that page. So it's funny now because now there's like this whole concept of position sticky, which will stay and scroll when you are at a certain point, you give it a top positioning, but then fixed, it stays on that page. So you could do some fun things like background styles. I saw this one example years ago, I, you know, talking about college, uh, when it was kind of new, like background attachment fixed, where as you scrolled, only one layer, the background layer moved, but the rest of the page remained the same. So it was kind of like if you can imagine a paper doll and then the outfits are changing, but the head's staying the same. It was that kind of aesthetic. So that's an awesome analogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yeah. It's just the possibilities is so massive, right? There's just so many ways you can style a website, an app. And I think that the reason why it gets so polarizing and, and so difficult to master is that it's just so powerful. And when it's so powerful, it's hard to really know all the things, right? Like it's a mixture of design. It's a mixture of engineering. It's a mixture of all these different disciplines. And I tried even Googling like what's a current CSS standard. Like, is there a way like here is the right way. There is no real right way for CSS. It's more like here's a bunch of standards that are adopted by browsers and find a way to hack those together to make your interesting interface or your you know creative ways to do things like, like uh Sticky, for example, position sticky. Like that's a, a hacky way you can do that. It works, but it's like finding what works in CSS is almost like digging for gold. You might find it, you might not. I think that this is not actually that much different than JavaScript, where there are a lot of different ways to do the same thing, right? Yeah. And there are certain ways that are better for certain situations than others. So I think it's the same thing with CSS. Take a look at like Flexbox and Grid, for example. You know, with Grid... Grid is a great layout mechanism that can do the same thing that Flexbox can do, but they're sort of intended for different things. Grid is more intended for two-dimensional layouts, macro layouts, it's really good at doing, but it can also do inline, so like a horizontal like menu bar, the same way that Flexbox can do. Flexbox has a little bit more, I guess, flexibility in some ways <laughs> with things that are uh, single-dimensional. So I'll use them for different things. Um, If I have a more complex layout, I'm probably going to use a grid. I can set the columns and the rows and the positioning of everything. And then with Flexbox, if I have like a unidentified number of items, I might use that if I want them to flow in a certain way. You can do that with grid too. But then with cards and smaller elements, I usually will use Flexbox. So I think this is similar to making a decision and like what type of function to use in JavaScript to get to an output. Exactly. You can get an output array in a million different ways. Well, you need that experience, right? Like it's it's like any person using a tool or a set of tools or learning a set of tools. Like over time, you become a master because you've had experience with the tool. You understand the minimum and maximum capabilities of it. You understand the nuances of it. And then you know when to reach for it and how to master it over time because you have that experience. And I think, you know, I don't know how you describe experience. You mentioned a job post, for example, recently. Like it was, you were saying that five years of React experience and maybe not asking for that with CSS I don't know why that's the case, honestly, but like you only get mastery or even close to mastery with CSS. And I think that's pretty hard to achieve mastery, but because you get experience, because you build complex interfaces, not just once, but many times, so many times that you almost like love hate it because you just done it so many times. You really understand the tool. I was just going to mention, like, in the past, I think there was such an emphasis on JavaScript. It's, like, if we took a look at the interviewing process, like, just a few years ago, it was heavily 
oriented towards JavaScript algorithms, data structures, problem solving. Now we're seeing this shift where it's more all encompassing in terms of technical interviews. You're getting asked to, you know, here's a mock-up. Can you create this in HTML and CSS? And so I'm happy to see that shift because now it feels a little bit more equal. But I don't know. I don't know where this gatekeeping mentality of like HTML and CSS are not as hard as JavaScript. It's like, okay, the syntax is more simplistic, but that doesn't mean it's any less powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think another element of all this is the rise of component libraries and systems. So I think Bootstrap is actually a really big reason why needing to learn how to style things was less important. I mean, I used to go to hackathons all the time. And everyone was using Bootstrap because you didn't have time to build a UI like this. And it was also very limiting. So we have all these websites that look the exact same because they're all using the exact same component libraries and systems. And now bigger companies have their own design systems teams. And that's usually where you'll find more of the CSS experts. I think it's interesting because there's also a lot of different ways you can architect CSS. And one of those ways is called object-oriented CSS. And that was initially pioneered by Nicole Sullivan. Now there's a reemergence of that. It's called Tailwind. Is one example of a product that uses those same concepts of essentially you're, instead of writing color red, using a class called C red, whatever. And I think that this helps developers who, for some reason, have a mental block about writing styles in CSS and just want to have that all in one page. It also helps with some things like if you don't have like a really robust architecture for your app and you just want to have it as simplistic as possible, just keep it all in HTML and JavaScript, it helps with that. But when you want to go outside of that system, it makes it really difficult. So you end up running into the same issue again of every app looks the same with a different color theme because when you go outside of that boundary, if you don't have the skill set to make something function differently or be styled differently, it's what are you going to do then? Yeah. I wonder if I can look at how we got here, though, because you mentioned Bootstrap. And I think it's almost like the interface is a nuisance to an MVP, a minimum viable product, like shipping something. And I think we got here because we had so many disruptions in web standards and so many like we lived in an era where browsers were leapfrogging in terms of like adoption of certain features. We've sort of stabilized to some degree now, but the reason why Bootstrap came about was because writing interfaces was super hard and mm -hmm. there weren't that many masters at it. So you needed an easy button and the easy button became frameworks or Bootstrap or uh, there's a ton of other different ones out there. But the reason I think we may have gotten there was because it was very difficult. It's stabilized now and it's a little bit easier just to say in a coding interview, make this mock-up. And you could probably do it in an hour or two, maybe less, you know, depending upon how skilled you are. But we probably got here because of the need for an easier way to interface because it was just so dang hard. It's not that it's easier now, but like the standards have stabilized in comparison. I can recall making rounded corners with images. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that was terrible. It was the worst it's ever. It's not only that they've stabilized, it's that they've enabled us to do so much more. They've evolved. Yeah. And I could really make an analogy here with jQuery and how everyone used to use jQuery. When you Google something on Stack Overflow, you'd not find an answer in vanilla JavaScript. You'd only find the jQuery solutions. So I think that it's analogous to that where building components, a lot of the components that Bootstrap, for example, provided for us was just much harder to do than they are now. Yeah. But in addition to that, SaaS and all of the emergence of 
what was Ruby-based, now Node-based, preprocessors, now post-processors, those, I think, really put CSS on the map as a complex programming language because you had loops, you had logic, you have all of these things, nesting, mix-ins, that are becoming something that is an integral part of the system for how we write code. And even though now preprocessors are kind of like phasing out, we still have a lot of logic that people use to process CSS with post-CSS. And the spec itself is evolving to accommodate for a lot of the things that SAS provided us. So for example, CSS variables that are true dynamic variables recently came out. They're called CSS custom properties. That yeah. is something that like completely changes the game because you could use that within any function inside of CSS. You could use that as an updated value from JavaScript without changing the styling. You could definitely separate your logic and styling that way. There's so much like nesting is a spec that my colleague Adam Argyle is actually working on to see how we can bring that to the web. You know, challenges there are like, how do we not break existing SaaS implementations that have versions of nesting? There's a lot of really cool, powerful tools that we're now putting into the spec to give us the ability to create components and style things. And it's not just CSS. I also co-chair a What Working Group community group called OpenUI. And the idea there is, why are forms so annoyingly hard to style still? Why can't we have a range slider where you could change the background color? What about pop-ups? That feels like a common pattern. What about like little toggle buttons? There's all of these things that are annoying, like select menus, drop-downs. And so I think we're just now trying to really figure out how we can get browsers on board to create unified implementations and make this stuff easier to, as a base layer, put onto the web. Fix accessibility, stop people from building things with divs, a million divs, and make it right on the web. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. bit more about CSS specificity because to be honest with you, I, when I was learning CSS, did not understand that there is a mathematical formula that determines how our styles get applied based off of the type of selectors that we are using. Yuna, would you like to kind of give us a high level overview on what specificity is and why it's important? Yeah. So specificity is the way to make sure that you could write a style that applies to a specific set of elements give that more specific instruction because css can be very broad you can apply it to say like all of your paragraphs that's one way to have specificity or you could be more specific in what you are applying so you could give it a class that's a class name and then apply like for the blue class i want all my 
paragraphs to have color blue. So specificity is pretty critical in how you write CSS because it tells the browser when to apply styles and when not to apply styles, when to override other styles that are applied and when not to do that. Actually, a really interesting concept from Harry Roberts is called inverted triangle CSS. And it is an architectural sort of paradigm of you want all of your CSS to go from least specific to most specific. So kind of like inverted triangle at the top, least specific, and then only override little parts when you need to do that. If you can imagine that inverted triangle in your head as you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> Isn't it like the more specific selectors take more processing power to actually query for? I heard that somewhere where like if you have a lot of selectors that are very specific, it's going to be a lot more performance heavy. I don't know what the implications are of that, but. Yes, and it's also very negligible. The general best practice is not to go more than like three levels deep. Also, I will say like if you're targeting something like a class of blue, you don't need p.blue, you just put .blue. So you don't need to like repeat selectors, but generally like the three levels deep thing would be p and then space.blue space span would mean that like within your paragraph, you'd have something with a class of blue. And then within that, you have a span tag. So when you have a space that is a child of the parent within right. it. Right. Those are called descendant combinators. And this is where I want to move us into these different kind of selectors, because I didn't actually know the words for some of these, but they're quite powerful. So what Yuna just mentioned is called a descendant combinator. And combinators are used to combine element selectors in a semantic hierarchy. So again, yeah, descendant combinators are delineated by a space. So this will affect any child, even nested children. But there are a couple other combinators that you can use to select specific elements. One that you might see all the time is like the greater than symbol. And that is called a child combinator, but it only affects direct children. So combinators kind of confused me when I started. Like I was seeing all these like characters in CSS and I'm like, what are these? I don't understand them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great, great thing to bring up. So kind of back to like the specificity thing. There are a lot of ways to tag an element. So you could give it a class name that we mentioned. You can give an ID, which is more specific because you can only have one ID on a page. That's what you're supposed to have. Unique IDs. There's also attribute selectors as ways that you can attach styles to an element. So you could use data attributes to apply styles. There's a bunch. Like you could use like ahref equals and then apply certain styles to things that have links or are links. You can get really specific in that sense. But then you just mentioned combinators, and this is like the next step of the specificity chain. So not only is it important how you tag something, but you could apply styles based on an element's siblings, so the things that are next to them, or its parent by this like top-down approach. So you mentioned that child combinator. So like the greater than sign is, say you have, I don't know, I'm using paragraphs here. <laughs> sure, we'll go with paragraph. So you have a paragraph. And you want to apply a style to only its direct children. So say you have like a paragraph that is your first paragraph and it's called the like dot hero paragraph. And say you want to apply the span tags within the dot hero paragraph, you could use that direct child combinator. So if you have like a span tag with another span tag inside of it, it won't apply it to that style because it's not a direct child of the topmost parent. You kind of protect it. Yeah. Even the dot hero, though, like if you're doing a blog post, for example, and you want to style that first paragraph where you don't want to have to always add, you know, a class or a specific thing in there. You can just put a paragraph and the styles know that it is the first paragraph, that it's not dot hero, for example, or class of hero, for example. And that's a great way to like use that specificity to your 
advantage so that you don't have to constantly, every time you write that blog post, put P, class equals, you know, all the good stuff, hero class, for example, like that would be painful. And then some people, they don't even have those skills or they don't want to know like how to put a class on a paragraph. Like you just don't want to teach that to everybody. So you want to use CSS to give you the power to do it. And for that example, you could use something like first of type. So you could do like P first of type. Exactly. And then where that also becomes even more handy is when you don't have access to control the markup. So like, for example, I used to work in publishing and everything was converted into HTML automatically and it wouldn't add all these classes. There wouldn't be additional markup. So we would have to use specificity and sort of combinators of certain things to style that article, to style what paragraphs look like surrounding ads. And we'd get creative with like nth child and like types and things like that to apply those styles. Yeah. Yeah. And these are examples of pseudo classes, actually. So we have two other areas that as they relate to selectors, uh, pseudo classes and pseudo elements, pseudo classes, there are so many of them, I didn't realize until I was like preparing for the show. Some of the ones that I use almost all the time are hover, focus, disabled, things like that you have visited if, if a link is visited. But to Yuna's point, there's nth of type, there's first child, last child, nth last child. So you can even select the last four elements. Like if you have an unordered list, and you want the last four elements, or something to be a different color, you could do nth last child and use, you know, negative n plus four. It's there's a lot of math that goes into this that I don't think we take the time to learn. I'm not sure why. I think maybe because it's so easy to just slap a class on an HTML element and say like, okay, like we're going to use class. But, you know, pseudo classes are so powerful. Yeah. When you really have a good grasp on this, you could do some creative things. For example, um, when I was working with this publisher, we had a section for credit. So you would have like a photo shoot and you might want to credit like the hairdresser, the model, the editor for the article. And just using nth types, like this kind of syntax, I was able to say like, all right, if you have four or more people, make this view look in line. If it's less than four items, like less than four attributes, paragraphs, make it stack. And I didn't need to apply classes doing JavaScript. You could just do it all in CSS. Another cool thing that you can do is with these advanced selectors, like the general sibling selector, the general sibling selector is like a, it's that wavy, the wavy thing. Tilda. The tilde. tilde. Yeah, the tilde. The <laughs> uh, general sibling selector says like, select any of a certain type that is a sibling to this element. So you can create CSS games and you can use counters and this general sibling selector to identify like, I made this game that was like a target game where you you have these divs moving up in front of a target and you kind of have to click when the div isn't like covering the target to like get it and you can use the counters to count it up. And then the general sibling selector would then style like all of the siblings when that thing was hit. So like it would stop moving because it has a sibling that is in line with that other element. So you could do a lot of cool things. <laughs> I'm kind of like going to a tangent here <laughs> about, uh, I guess, creative CSS. I think this is where it really kind of goes from design focused cascading style sheets, for example, to programmatic, right? Because like mm -hmm. once you do, it's sort of like if, like if this contains X, then do Y. You know, yeah. That's where you start to get into those, mm -hmm. you know, engineering programming kind of ways. And that's where I think maybe the divide we talked about in section one was really like, that's kind of where it comes from. Because once you get to a certain mm -hmm. point, there is so much power in CSS that you can begin to program, program interfaces, you know, and, and create games even. One, isn't necessary to just say bold this element. 
for example. It's it's not the case. One thing I always struggle with, though, is like the cascade where it starts up at the parent level and trickles down like styles do. But like one thing I struggle with is like, okay, if a child is selected, I want the parent to take on this style. It's like you can't pass it upwards. Is there like a, a best practice for this type of situation? That is like one of the biggest struggles in CSS is just because the way the cascade works, it cascades downward. So there's really no way to get the parent based on a child's adjusted styles. It is something that we talk about in the CSS working group. It's just really hard to calculate. So I think if that does happen, it might be like a direct parent. That is a lot easier than just doing a general parent, but it's not as useful because usually if you have a style selected, like say when you focus on a add to cart button, you probably want to style the parent card, not like the direct parent, which might be like another div that has the paragraph in it and an image. So it gets a little tricky there because you can't really go backwards mm -hmm. up the ladder. Yeah. yeah. You almost need like an advanced mode. Not that there's uh you know, like you might have an interface that's like just pretty simple. It's a blog. It, it doesn't require interactivity as much as say an application might, where maybe you have an advanced mode. You can say, well, in this advanced mode, we have these newer specifications that allow us to be more experimental with the transfer of the cascade, for example, to go up versus just down. Yeah, that's a hard problem to solve. And <laughs> I hope one day we get to see some kind of solution. Or maybe I just need to rewire my brain to architect things differently. But one area I'd love to quickly touch on is pseudo elements because I feel like they can be used for powerful things. But to be honest with you, I don't know the best use cases for them. So like, this is the other question I have. Typically, the pseudo elements would be two colons before the keyword, but we don't need them anymore, right? Like we can just use one colon now, can't we? Didn't that change? Technically, like two colons is correct because it is a way to differentiate from pseudo classes. Ah, but okay. both will, t will work. Like the browser will read them both the same way. Um, it ah, just fixes okay. it for you. Oh, that's so, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> the great thing about CSS is if you have an error, it will just not read that line of code. It won't break your entire application. So you can kind of keep mm. going. Yeah. Yeah. Pseudo elements are kind of interesting because they're like a subset or like a piece of an element that you can do things to. So like first line, if you have a paragraph, I assume that's what that corresponds to. Or first letter would be like the first letter in, you know, a, a paragraph or a heading. Before and after are also really interesting. And I, I'm trying to remember what I would use these for. I think like, let's say you have a piece of text and you've got like two lines on either side to make it look like fancy or whatever. You could use the pseudo elements before and after to actually generate those lines. But what other use cases would we have for like the before and after pseudo elements? There's a lot. So the difference between pseudo classes and pseudo elements is classes act on a state. So that state could be like hover or link, which means that it's a unvisited link, things like that, like states. And then the pseudo elements are parts of the UI. So with before and after, you could put content in there and display content. You could use it for like arrows. You could have like a blank content and then use it to make like a tooltips arrows or any other decorative elements. You can use it for a background layer to create like a funky border or to create like a blend mode on top of another element. There's also additional pseudo elements like marker where you could style list item markers, that little like dot, you could put like emojis in it, whatever you want to put in it. But pseudo elements let you style UI elements that would otherwise be inaccessible. So in a way you can kind of think of this as like a shadow DOM where the way to access them is through the pseudo elements. You, you typically don't have access to that 
in the DOM. You don't have access to that marker in the DOM. But when you use the marker pseudo element, you can style that marker. I love that. I think that's a great explanation. And I didn't know that. One question I have is, are these accessible to screen readers? I assume if you have content, like textual content in the content property, that that would be accessible. But how does that work? It depends, which is the fun mm-hmm. thing. I think that <laughs> yeah. the newer screen readers do read out content. Older screen readers don't. So I don't know what the percentage of screen readers that do is. Typically, that content is read out, but it's generally best practice to not rely on the content within yeah. a pseudo element for actual, you know, important text content. Mm. It's better for a visual layer or something that's like, I don't know, some kind of other treatment. I think like right. triangles for tooltips is a good example. <laughs> wow, that was heavy. Yeah, I like, I wish specificity was taught as like a concept. Like, I feel like maybe nowadays it is being taught more. I didn't know specificity was a thing when I was like taking my web development course in college. So it can be a lot to That's learn a problem. if you aware that it exists. It is a problem. Mm-hmm. It's a huge problem. It's like, we're, it's like, we're, I, like we're learning to drive a car without understanding yeah. yeah. Like what the things that we're doing are actually doing. For me, it was like the box model. Learn those concepts you mentioned, you know, like earlier in the segment one. Like, I think if you have some of those kind of core theory things around the way CSS works, not just specificity, but like all the things, I feel like if you have that sort of like undercurrent of your understanding of the tool and the language, then you really have a wide variety of the ways, not just tricks, you know, tricks and, and hacks. Like that was... You know, I can remember even like having a whole hacks file where it was just like, this is where we put hacks. And once these things hit the spec, we delete them or we change them. We know where they sort of, we encapsulate them. But, you know, I think if you have those theory, those sort of core concepts, the way that like positioning works or the specificity works and different things, then you can really use the tool much better than, I think maybe a lot of people learn it by cargo culting or just like looking at what somebody else does. <laughs> learn and, as like, you go. You know yeah. I mean? Like, I feel like that's the way that, a lot of, at least that's the way I learned. I didn't go to school for it. I read books. I took some notes before this started because I was like, what was the first book I read around CSS? And it was literally Eric Meyer on CSS. Mm. Like mm-hmm. one of the OG uh, books on the subject. And it was like, I have it sitting ago. over there. <laughs> and, I think I have it upstairs yeah, too. I mean, like, and then transcending CSS. Like these are like early days of the language. And I think that that's how I learned even was just like, what are other people doing? that have more experience than me that I can leverage. There was no school for it. There was no, here's the core principle theories of CSS. Go learn these and then be powerful. It was sort of like incremental and learning iteratively and and sort of like scattered. It was never really like, here's exactly how it works. Go do well. Well, it's funny that you mentioned this because my team has been working on helping people to learn these things. And on the 18th of May, my team is launching a online course called Learn CSS, which we will add to the show notes when that launches. But it goes through this, like it goes through the box model, specificity, the cascade, a bunch of CSS concepts like inheritance and sizing units and color layout, flexbox, logical properties, which is a way to inject internationalization in your styles. It goes through the pseudo elements, pseudo classes, like border shadows, all those fun things like Z-index and making sure that things are layered on top of each other. Like what is compositing? Why is Z-index working or not working in one place or another? And then for the specificity part, it's one of my favorite parts because we go through like how to calculate specificity. So like with an element and pseudo element, that would be like one point of specificity. It's like your base layer. 
Well, actually, the base layer is the universal selector, which gets no points. That's like a star. <laughs> no points <laughs> but for then, you. Um, yeah, no points. But then on top of that, like you could do classes. Those get 10 points. IDs get 100 points because you're now getting more and more specific. And then uh, the important rule, you get 10,000 points specificity. So when you're applying multiple selector styles, like if you did like a dot my class dot another class and then an attribute of href colon hover, like that is 41 points. You can calculate and see what is more specific than another thing. And just like learning like the nth syntax value, like how you do nth child, this is another thing to learn as like a micro syntax, I guess, of CSS. Like Mm -hmm. within this language, there's a bunch of like these smaller nuanced things that can really help you get a very clear understanding of why something is happening. People struggle with CSS because they don't understand why things are getting applied styles. Which is why you get tricks and hacks because it's like, what is working? How did it work? Why is it there? Why is it moved? In Firefox, it's this way. In Chrome, it's that way. You know, why, 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 essentially? You know what I want? (laughs) I want someone listening to build a VS Code plugin that will give me on Hover like the specificity calculation of a selector. Can someone build that? That's a good idea. Yeah. Why aren't, that needs to be a thing. I don't have time for it, to build it. I think with some of the newer techniques of like CSS and JS and CSS modules, it's a little bit less yeah. critical Absolutely. because you're scoping the styles to that element. So you don't have to worry about global styles yeah. in your app. You just have to worry about specificity within a component. Yeah, for sure. What up, party people? If you want to know what's happening with your code, track errors, and monitor app performance with Sentry, build better software faster with Sentry's application monitoring platform, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code, cut your time on error resolution from hours to minutes, it works with any language, and integrates with dozens of services. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. And best of all, GS Party listeners new to Sentry get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io to get started and use the code PARTYTIME when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code PARTYTIME because, hey, it's party time, y'all. So we've talked about specificity. We've talked about lots of other things regarding CSS, but now we're going to talk about one area of CSS I feel like many people get excited about, and that is responsive design or responsive layouts using Flexbox and Grid. Really quickly, let's talk about how we got here because it used to be we needed floats to like position things, and then we had to use like media. I know those are like two different things, but like then we had to use media queries to like do breakpoints, and there was mobile first, and and now we've got like responsive layouts with Flexbox and Grid, and you had talked about this earlier, Yuna, about like the different use cases. Um, but I always hear people like, should I use Flexbox or Grid, uh, one or the other? I'm like, well, you can kind of use both. You can use them in tandem. It kind of all depends on what you're going for. Yeah, totally. I think that was a good summation. I mean, even before media queries, it was tables, and you could do fluid tables. So you could have like a layout that had two sidebars and the center was fluid, and that was 
a table-based layout. And then CSS3 really emerged about 10 years ago. And that was where we got media queries and all of those great ways to adjust styles, exactly as you said, to fit mobile, tablet, desktops, etc. And now I even feel like that is getting a little bit outdated because we're getting even more capabilities. So media queries, I like to think of responsive design as not just about screen size. I like to think of it as about user experience, making something responsive to the user, making it responsive to the form factor and making it responsive to the container. And we can get to that in the end because that's kind of like the next, mm. um, the next era of responsive design is very much among us. I think it's just understanding the tools that you have and knowing that you can very much combine grid and media queries and Flexbox to fit your use cases. The place where the screen would end up has changed. And I think it's also how we got here too, because if you rewind 10 years, we didn't have mobile as prevalent. We didn't have applications as prevalent. You know, we had maybe the screen would change because people's literal screen they use for work or for, for fun. You know, like people sometimes use computers for fun. Now many people just use their phone or a tablet for their fun and not so much a computer itself. And I think over time, that screen that essentially captured the user's interest was uh, was ever-changing. I remember it was 1024 by 768. That's how far back. Like, I can remember, like, designing for that specific screen size. And, like, what is this interface optimizing for? And then this whole idea of, like, mobile first and things like that. That came because where we put our applications, where we put our interface, had new screens to deal with. And that's why I think we maybe designed for desktop first way back. And now it's like, well, when you design, you design for mobile first or for the smallest screen first. And that's kind of how we got here. It was like this constant evolution. And maybe that's the downfall of CSS is that we're in this constant evolution. And now maybe it's a bit more stable, but it's been like the last 15 years is like constant change with where we well, put I our interface. Well, I think that that constant change is specifically to support our users yeah. and to support the use cases. So as you mentioned, mobile usage has eclipsed desktop usage of most types of websites, specifically e-commerce. And we're seeing a lot of people shopping on their phone. We're seeing a lot of people coming online that didn't have internet access 10 years ago. Yeah. And the majority of those users are banking and using their mobile devices to access the internet. So when we are building, you know, there's this whole idea of mobile first, simplifying the UI, making sure that content is king on your interface, and then expanding it from there. So when we do have these CSS sort of adjustments, things that are added to the spec, it's very much intended to give developers the tools they need to create moderate interfaces as moderate interfaces change. And now we're seeing foldable screens. So we need CSS to target foldable screens. What do we do there when you want to you know, create a UI for those screens? And it goes even beyond that. Yeah. Like you're going to hate this because <laughs> now it goes to user preferences, right? So you have to think about- Dark mode or not dark what, mode. Yeah. Or, yeah. Dark theme, which saves battery life. Yeah. You have to think about prefers reduced motion, prefers contrast. There's a battery saver mode that Adam was working on prototyped in Canary. So there's a lot of different things that you can do with CSS to create more responsive experiences that are beyond just a screen size. And there's also performance things you could do with CSS, like with containment and like content visibility and have things not render until they're about to enter the screen. So it's, it's such a cool evolving area that, I don't know, I get really excited about where it's going. And now with container queries, oof. I don't know. Should we t take a step back and talk about some of the well, that, other responsive things first? Going deeper into responsive, of course, but I think that's like over the three segments here so far, it's like that's where the complexity comes in. 
It's just so much yeah. to do. And you get, I suppose, to the need to understand those things when you get more and more experience and or do more and more complex work. Like somebody building a blog is not going to need to know most of that at least, right? Well, somebody Maybe building a blog won't need to know JavaScript either. They just need to use an existing template platform. Right. And that's what I mean. Like that's why you have this graduated scale of where you need to sort of learn more about it, the way CSS works. But yeah, I, you get more giddy. I get more and more afraid. Of, like I, I have no envy for the spec writers. I have no envy for that at all. It's like that's hmm. very tough work. Yeah. So one of the things that actually, as soon as I thought about doing a CSS episode, I wanted to run straight to you, you know, was because you published a YouTube video called 10 Modern Layouts in One Line of CSS that like totally blew my mind. And you use a lot of the heavy duty CSS grid, I don't know, functions, is that what they're called? Like min max, fraction, repeat, clamp. Those things are all super powerful, but I never fully understood them. Min max is kind of a little bit self-explanatory where you like can set a minimum what width or height or or size, I guess, and a maximum size. But how is that different from clamp? Like what is the difference there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think like something people don't realize is that CSS has a ton of functions that give you some sort of output. And with these functions like min, max, min, max, they're actually all different functions. You can do a lot of robust sort of information uh, in one like small piece of code. So a simple example of a function that you would use within a grid is repeat. So instead of setting like a grid template columns to like 100px, 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 you could do repeat for comma 100px. So you can just more succinctly write that all together. Then there's things like min-max where you could set a minimum maximum size for something to grow and shrink into. And on top of that, outside of grid, there are also min functions and max functions and the clamp function. And I wrote an article about that specifically, but this you could use for anything like an element and give it like a minimum, like a size. And what min will do is it'll read two different sizes. So you could do like 100px comma, like, I don't know, say 50%, and it'll take the minimum of those two values, like which one's smaller. And then max is the opposite. And then clamp will give you three values where you set like an actual value. So say I want my actual value to be 0.5 VW or 50%. And then you can set a minimum and a maximum to clamp it between. So if that 50% is smaller than say a minimum size of 100 pixels, it'll clamp it to 100 being the minimum and the max the opposite. If it's bigger than that, it'll clamp it to the max. So you can use these for sizing for typeface sizing. So people will do that for font size. And then you can also use something like min-max within a grid, which sets a column or a rows min-max size to fit the space because you have fluid grids. And you can use other keywords like autofill and autofit to have those elements fit or fill a space and give those more advanced, I guess, specific sizing. What's the difference between autofit and autofill? Because they sound like they would do the same thing. Well, they don't do the same thing. Uh, they're very similar. Yeah. So this is one that I always like also have to look up because I can't remember the difference. <laughs> but auto fit is when you have a full page and some items within it. So say you have a grid template columns. I'm just going to take one from the one line layout site. Repeat. And then that's a function within that. You can have another function. So auto fit comma min max. So you set your minimum of 150 pixels, your maximum of one FR, which is one fractional unit of remaining space. 
And then with auto fit, it will fit it so that even as it expands past 150 pixels, like that one FR will fill that space. With auto fill, you're going to take that baseline size and as you expand, it's not going to stretch out to fill the remaining space. So that is useful when you have like logos or you have more set sizing that you don't want to fully fill oh. out a parent. So they're very Interesting. kind of like one of those elements that I always forget the difference between. Yeah. <laughs> and I like will just fiddle. To be honest, like fractional units confuse the living crap out of me. Like I can kind of understand it conceptually, but it's one of those things where I'm like, I just don't get it. Like if I have like five elements and you have like one FR on one of them and two FR on the second and then the rest like don't have anything. Like I don't understand what's going to happen. Like I'm very confused by grid to be honest. <laughs> I only use it for like setting template columns and rows and that's about it. I don't understand fractional units. So the fractional units, say you have a space, right? And the reason why we have fractional units is that we have more flexibility mm. in that space. So, all right, we have, say, like five divs inside of a parent. And if you have the columns being five, one fractional unit, they'll all take up their remaining space. Now you remove a div. There's only four divs. Now each one of those will be a little bit bigger because oh. each one, each fractional unit is a little bit bigger. Got it. Okay, cool. And then if something's like 2FR, it'll take up double the amount of space as like the other. Exactly. Okay. Yes. This is my naivety here, but how is this different than percentages? Like, I don't understand what the difference is So there. percentage is the percentage of the parent, right? Okay. And okay. if you add or remove divs, they're all going to take that percentage size. So you have to adjust the percentage. With fractional units, you don't have to actually do any adjustment and calculation of percentage. You just say like, I want all these to take up one fractional unit, maybe you want like a hero to take up like three fractional units to have more space than something else would have. So you could really like start specifying there how oh much space you take up without doing all the calculation. That's really cool. And I feel like I need to learn it better. One tool that I used to learn grid originally was called grid garden and they have one for flexbox too. I think it's probably the same creator cause it looks the same style that was flexbox froggy, but are there other mm -hmm. resources that you would recommend for learning grid and flexbox? Well, check out our grid and flexbox guides for learn CSS. <laughs> that is out next week. We'll definitely share a link for that. MDN docs are really good. I love reading MDN docs for any of my CSS needs. I basically, when I have a CSS question, will go to MDN, which is developer.mozilla.org, and then I'll search in the search box there instead of like just the general web search for mm -hmm. CSS stuff. Yeah, and I think actually... CSS tricks. When I was talking to Chris Coyer about it, he was saying that Flexbox and Grid are their most looked up articles on their entire platform. And I believe it because I access it at least once a day. <laughs> I think it's yeah. because it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. And that's something that like a framework like Tailwind can't really help you with because right. you still have to create generalized layouts and overall Grid and Flexbox UIs to still be able to use some of the object-oriented CSS stuff. Yeah. It's so nice now that these tools exist because, yeah, I remember having to use Bootstrap or another framework because building robust, complex grids was really just not possible at the time. One question I have is about subgrids because I think this is up and coming, right? Having a grid within a grid. 
Yeah. But it doesn't exist yet. Not yet. It's still a work in progress. Subgrids basically attach onto a parent grid and allow you to use elements of that parent grid along with a subgrid. Mm -hmm. So there is like a pass-through component, and that is still a work in progress, getting worked on slash implemented. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to some of the specifications coming down the pipeline. And yeah, I think this is maybe like a nice note to kind of end things on. But I feel like we covered a lot of ground today. We talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think one last thing to mention is an experimental sort of property that you can play with in Canary with a flag turned on. And that is at container, which enables container queries. And container queries Mm. are sort of like the next generation of responsive design because instead of relying on global media queries to adjust page styles, you can use a parent container's size to apply styling to its children. So now something like a card can own all of its responsive information. You could put it in a sidebar, you could put it in a hero, you could put it in a product grid, Mm. and that component itself knows how to style itself based on where it lives in that page. It's like going to change how we think of responsive design, like just completely. That's something we actually had to build ourselves at Spotify. Like we had to build like a custom hook to like get the container queries because like we've got the left sidebar that's resizable and we have the friend feed on the right side, which is resizable. And that main content container needed to obviously resize based on those two components. So we actually had to build like a custom hook for it. And I would be so thrilled if we could rip that out and replace it. Yeah, because it's super (laughs) like not perform it to have the browser do all the calculation mm-hmm. for you. So yeah, I'll hit you up when that's good to go. Yeah. You can experiment with it now. Yes, I'm sure that we will. That would be a fun hack day project. So awesome. If y'all listening liked this, Yuna and Adam have their own CSS podcast. Yuna also has another podcast she mentioned called Tool Stay with Chris Donaraj that we're going to link both of those in the show notes as well as all of the courses and resources mentioned. I'm so thrilled that we got to talk today. I like really look up to you in terms of like, well, lots of things, but CSS specifically, you're like one person I really admire. So I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I appreciate that because you're definitely someone I look up to in the community and I love following what you're doing. And it's just such a joy to get to sit down and chat with you for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's so, it's so like unbelievable. This is the first time, even though we worked in the same building for a couple of years. <laughs> I feel like there's so many people I met at IBM yeah. that I like didn't really get a chance to work with until later, which yeah. is ironic like Jason Langsdorf. Like yeah. I, how funny. Pe- people just think we knew each other from Twitter. I'm like, no, we worked in the same building. Like, I knew him pretty well. And he's the reason that I got into speaking. Because I remember being like, oh, my gosh, you can speak for a living and people will, like, you know, pay for you to fly there. That's nuts. That's exactly why I started <laughs> doing it. Because I was, I was like, I want to travel. That's what I want to do with my life. And I also like yeah. tech. And there was this thing that combined those two, mm-hmm. which is awesome. And I just love meeting developers who are working on like such different things around the world because in those localities Mm -hmm. tech is completely different and that's i think one of the most rewarding things too about conference speaking well i've enjoyed this episode just remember that css is beautiful and robust and we need to all not defend it but like let's all like preach that in the twitter sphere and and get it you know let's improve the reputation because it is an amazing tool hashtag css is a programming language 
spicy, <laughs> spicy takes. I love it. That's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> all right, y'all. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed it. I hope y'all have a great rest of your day. And with that, thank you so much again. If you aren't subscribed to Changelog Weekly, you're missing out on what's moving and shaking in the world of software. We cover what's new, what's interesting, and why. And it's totally free. Check it out at changelog.com slash weekly and subscribe today. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Thanks again to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Lenote. Next up on the pod, Brian LaRue joins Amel and Nick to school them on the history, present, and future of different rendering patterns. SSR, pre-rendering hybrids, islands, SPAs, all that. We'll have that episode all ready for you next week. Thank you.